Welcome to Navarra Live, where I am joined, reunited in fact, with Ash Sarkar. Ash, it feels like it's been too long. You tried to get rid of me, but like a cold sore, I just kept on coming back. I've been strongly lobbying on the Slack that I get Ash Sarkar on Mondays, but I keep <laughs> trying to share you out. We have some big stories tonight. The SMP leadership race whittled down to free, although I suppose we will be talking about whether anyone else will announce. Tory lies on strikes. Phenomenal mandate the junior doctors have now. We'll also be talking about Sadiq Khan's free school meal policy and a hilarious video from Jonathan Gullis. You won't want to miss that. That will be closing the show. Nicola Sturgeon's surprise resignation announcement last week has left a vacancy at the top of the SNP, but several big contenders for the job have already ruled themselves out. These include Angus Robertson, the former leader of the SNP in Westminster, SNP Deputy Leader Keith Brown, and Deputy First Minister John Swinney. So who has thrown their hat into the ring? Well, over the weekend, Scotland's Health and Social Care Secretary Humza Youssef announced his candidacy, the youngest ever MSP when he was elected. He's also both the first non-white and first Muslim cabinet member in Scotland's government. But he's been criticised for his handling of the crisis in the Scottish NHS. This was Youssef's pitch. I've thought hard about it, and I've decided to put myself forward as Scotland's next First Minister. I'm doing it because the top job requires somebody who has experience. And I have been trusted by Nicola Sturgeon with some of the toughest jobs in government, as Transport Minister, as Justice Secretary, and now entrusted to steer our NHS through its recovery from the global pandemic. But I'm also doing it because I believe in independence with every fibre of my being. I believe independence is needed now more than ever before, particularly after a decade of austerity. Also running is Kate Forbes. The 32-year-old finance secretary has cut her maternity leave short to take a shot at the top job, which she announced today. A member of the Evangelical Free Church of Scotland, she's previously suggested that she's against abortion. Forbes is also against gender recognition reform, though she was on maternity leave when the bill went through Parliament. Earlier today, BBC Scotland asked her whether she would have resigned over that bill if she weren't on leave, and she said this. That would have been a question of collective responsibility, and that would have been a decision that I would have had to take in discussion with colleagues. Obviously, I wasn't there, but I have concerns about self-ID, and those concerns remain. And then there is Ash Reagan, who announced her bid on Sunday. Formerly a Minister for Community Safety, she resigned in opposition to the Scottish Government's reforms to the Gender Recognition Act, or a similar level of disquiet to Forbes. She's called for the SNP to allow members who have left within the past year to be allowed to vote for the new leader. This is Regan speaking in a debate on gender recognition reform last year. So this bill may not spell it out, but I believe that we should delude ourselves. It comprehensively undermines the single sex exemptions. And we're being conditioned to accept male-bodied people in women's single-sex spaces. Why? Who does that benefit? And I would say to my fellow parliamentarians that it boils down to this. Do you think women will be more or less safe as a result of this law? And if you have any doubt, any doubt at all, that it will make women and girls less safe, then you cannot vote for it. To go through to the leadership vote, candidates have to secure 100 nominations from party members across at least 20 
of the party's local branches. If more than one pass this hurdle, there will then be an election with all members able to vote. I'm joined now by Hamish Morrison, political reporter for The National. Hamish, if the race remains between these three candidates, what will the key issues of the contest be? So I think that there's probably, on the social issues, quite a bit of difference here. We've got Kate Forbes, who just said, as you mentioned in the, at the BBC, uh, to, spoke to the BBC earlier today, telling them that she couldn't have backed the Scottish government's gender recognition reforms. And Ash Reagan, as you say, resigned from government. She got commendations from the likes of Joanna Cherry and J.K. Rowling for doing that. And then you've got Hamza Yousaf, who's definitely on this particular issue, and I suppose probably the other ones on this that are uh, the kind of surging continuity candidate of saying, you know, kind of socially progressive values and that sort of thing. I would say that the sort of trans thing is only a part of this. The Scottish government's also got work at the moment on establishing buffer zones around abortion clinics. And, you, you know, Hamza Yousaf said at his event earlier today that he would take forward that and build on it and kind of, as I say, kind of surging continuity candidate. Kate Forbes, her position on abortion, she did speak at a pro-life event. I think it was in 2018. She made a sort of pro-life comment about that. Um, or any choice, however you want to phrase it. And I think that that can tell you that she'd probably be more hesitant about doing something like that. Ash Reagan seems, as far as I can see, she's not been an MSP for a terribly long time, but does seem to be kind of more traditionally socially liberal and in the kind of mainstream of opinion on other issues, gay marriage, something, again, that there's questions around Kate Forbes' stance on. And what about economics? I mean, we're talking a lot about these social issues because that's what's been in the news a lot of people are associating that with Nicola Sturgeon's resignation, whether or not that is one of the reasons she she decided to step down. Are any of these candidates offering a big break from Nicola Sturgeon when it sort of comes to the economic policy of the SNP? Is there a lurch to the left, a lurch to the right? What could we be looking at? I wouldn't say that there's a terrible amount of difference between any of them on economic policies. The only one that I've actually seen speak specifically about economics at the moment is Ash Reagan. She tweeted earlier today, I believe it was today, uh, that she would be against a cut, a seven million cut to Scotland's cultural funding the government's been planning. So other than that, I think that you've got this kind of continuation of the SNP's model, which has been pretty much its kind of life raft and staying in government of higher public spending, Slight, very, very slightly higher taxes, a lot of money going to social security, the benefits that have become devolved to the Scottish government, these sorts of things. However, I've not seen anyone talking about local government funding has been cut massively over, not sure of the time scales, but over the years in Scotland and with a lot of that money staying within the central government. And I've not seen any of the candidates talk about that and actually kind of really get into these kind of economic issues, which I think you could potentially read as a sign that they would be pretty happy to stay on course for the most part of what's been the kind of defining policies of the Nicholas Sturgeon, either these kind of social security benefits, these kind of, you know, public spending and then health and things like that, that, that they're probably pretty unlikely to move away from. And finally, let's talk about the constitutional question. I mean, is there any significant difference between these candidates when it comes to you know, the mechanism by which to get a second referendum. Is anyone potentially going to put forward to say, actually, let's 
park the question for a little while, go for devolution and then go for full independence, you know, in five or 10 years time? Or are they all sort of going for the Nicola Sturgeon route, which is, you know, a referendum as soon as possible, essentially? So I think this is actually the biggest area of difference between them on on any sort of things other than the GRR question that they've each made quite different pitches on independence. Ash Reagan's is probably the most forthright. She's spoken about it the most, certainly, as far as I've seen, in saying that she wants basically a Holyrood election, a Westminster election, any of these to be used as a de facto referendum. She's really, really big the de facto referendum and not just that as a process, but that the getting over 51% of the vote would be begin negotiations with the UK government for separation, which is quite a hard line stance on independence and definitely quite different from the kind of easy, easy approach that we have come to expect from the SNP. I think then in the middle, you've got Kate Forbes, who's pitched herself as a kind of strong leader, competent leader, Someone who's going to take forward that Sam and Sturgeon model of competent, you know, steady government and slowly kind of build that case. And Hamza Yousaf, interestingly today, I think made the most agnostic pitch for an SNP senior figure on the question of independence that you might expect to see. He was basically saying that he didn't take a view on the mechanisms of how independence should be achieved. He actually made a quite interesting comment, which is like the extreme kind of gradualist position of saying well, basically, if we prove to the Scottish people that independence would be a good thing, would be a necessary thing, then uh, how will it work itself out? That will be inevitable. And so what that means for the special conference that they've got later in the year on this question of the mechanics of it is, you know, he says that he's happy to take it from his position on it from the membership and kind of guide that through as the leader of the SNP. So he's definitely kind of pitched himself more of a blank canvas on the independence question than any of the other candidates really. Let's go straight on to our next story. A whopping 98% of junior doctors have voted for strike action, joining nurses, ambulance workers, train drivers, civil servants and teachers. It's a big movement with some big mandates. But according to Penny Mordant, all of these workers are committing some kind of act of self-harm. Mr McLynch says that they're going to stop the trains again, the RCN, first time in its history. It's going out on a 48-hour strike without cover. Junior doctors yesterday say they're likely to come out. Um, is it the minister's, is it minister, minister's position still that it's not much you can do to stop this chaos? Look, I think it is political cynicism of the worst kind to encourage strikes. The only people that benefit from strikes are the Labour Party. Striking workers don't benefit from strikes. And uh, I think it's lunacy to say to people the best way to help make ends meet is to drive those ends further apart. These, these are not helpful. Uh, we need to focus on issues that, that each sector is facing. Those are what the respective secretaries of state are, are doing, but, but strikes are not helpful. And I would encourage people not to, not to do that. Strikes are not helpful. And I would encourage people not to do that, she says, without any notion of sort of self-interest. Of course, you don't want the strikes to happen any more than like that. That's obvious. <laughs> but your interests are not the same as the people going on strike. I had this sort of very patronizing tone, like she was sort of talking to toddlers in nursery school. That's not the right thing to do. I thought ridiculous from start to finish. Let's focus on one particular claim made, though, which was that strikes don't help striking workers. 
Now, on that point, I'm not convinced. To take just a few examples, in December, refuse workers in Wirral won a 15% pay increase after taking strike action. In early January, bus drivers in Sunderland won an 11% pay rise after going on strike. And just last week, striking London bus drivers working for Abellio won an 18% pay rise. So there's some recent examples of strike action working. We can also look at more macro data to make the point. This is the number of days lost to strike action by year since 1970. There was lots of strike action in the 1970s. It declined in the 1980s and has been very low ever since then. Now let's look at inequality over the same period when strike action was high in the 1970s. I showed you on that previous graph, the top 1% of earners took home 3% of national income. You might still say too much, but that started to rocket in the 1980s. And by 2017, it ends up at around 8%. Now, of course, it's no coincidence that when strikes fall, when the number of strikes fall, the wealth of the 1% increases. That's because strikes are how workers demand a bigger slice of the economic pie. In short, no strikes, and the 1% can get away with hoarding ever more wealth, ever more income. Of course, there were many other changes that took place between the 1970s and today, which could also explain an increase in inequality. Correlation is not causation, of course. But comparisons across countries suggest that the strength of unions does play a real and significant role here. A recent study by the Union Europa concluded this. Policies that restrain people's capacity to bargain collectively have proliferated in countries where inequality rates have grown most. This is the case in Bulgaria, Cyprus, Czechia, Germany after 1990, Greece after 2008, Hungary, Ireland, Malta, Poland and the UK. Meanwhile, countries that have maintained collective bargaining coverage at a high level have kept inequality at bay too. Examples are Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Netherlands and Sweden. Now, some of the examples listed there, they show in more details. They include the UK and Germany, where collective bargaining declined and inequality rose. In the 1960s and 1970s, around 80% of British workers were covered by collective bargaining agreements. It fell dramatically in the 1980s and right down to below 30%. In that same time, the share of the top 10% of income earners rose from 25% to 36%. So the share of income going to that top 10% dramatically rose. A similar pattern is visible in the German statistics, though there the fall in collective bargaining and rise in inequality happened later than in the UK. Now let's look at the countries that didn't restrict collective bargaining. This is for Belgium. In 1980, more than 90% of workers were covered by a collective bargaining agreement. That didn't change over the next 40 years. And lo and behold, the share of income going to the rich didn't increase either. And the same pattern is visible in Austria. Collective bargaining rates stayed close to 100% and income inequality remained flat. I don't think it's going to come as a surprise to anybody that a representative for the party of capital, corporate interests and bosses is turning around and saying, workers, you will better your lot if only you meekly go along with what your elite classes tell you is good for you. All right, that's her job as a conservative politician. So in a way, it doesn't really matter if she believes it or not. It's her job to advocate for the interests of capital. That's why she's a minister for this government. But while you've presented, I think, some really compelling economic data, macroeconomic data about showing the relationship between strong trade unions, collective bargaining, strike action, and rates of inequality in a society. And I think it's really meaningful to compare 
the UK to countries like the Netherlands, like Austria, because it's not as if we've got a less financialized economy than Belgium, for instance. They've also had their waves of neoliberalism. They've been part of the same global economy as us. But the big difference is the extent to which they've been impacted by anti-trade union legislation. So I think you've spelled it out perfectly that an equal society, a more equal society, which isn't just about the distribution of finances, it's also about the distribution of power. How meaningful is your democracy? What capacity do the rich have to hoard power in their hands, to warp the political process, democratic processes, judicial processes as well? These are all things which are tied to the distribution of wealth within a society. I think there's also, when you look back throughout history, a really strong case to be made for arguing that the strike, as in the collective withdrawal of labor, is one of the most powerful tools we have for shaping a more civilized society. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I've been doing a bit of research for a a video that I would like to do for a quality media organization called Navarro Media about the history of the strike action. And one of the things that I didn't realize was just how central strike action was to the abolition of slavery. So in 1831, I believe it was, there was a huge wave of strike action organized by enslaved people in Jamaica. So I think it was 60,000 slaves went on a general strike. This set off a chain of events which became known as the Baptist War. And about a year later, The British Parliament was forced effectively by abolitionists in Britain and also the disruption caused by this general strike and subsequent slave revolts in the colonies to start introducing abolitionist bits of legislation. There's another way of looking at the American Civil War, which is argued by W.E.B. Du Bois in Black Reconstruction, that the American Civil War wasn't a war really between two nation states. It was a general strike because you had en masse enslaved people leaving the plantations, not because they wanted an easier life as such, but to join the Union Army, right? It was a form of general strike, a withdrawal of their labor, which financially incapacitated the slave-owning South and also, of course, strengthened the army of the Union cause. Now, they weren't taking on that perilous journey because they were sick and tired of work. The conditions that they had to live under as part of the Union Army as black people were, were, you know, really bad. They had to face, uh, you know, daily humiliations. They had to put their lives in danger. But again, this tells us the story of the strike being a tool which civilizes society. And One of the most common threads of that is that the withdrawal of labor leads to various forms of equality. We've outlined the way in which it leads to economic equality with that macroeconomic data that you presented, but it's also about equality of citizens. It's also about equality under the law. Strikes have led to all those things, which I think we would all agree are the conditions for a basically functional and democratic society. And that's I think one of the reasons why the conservatives are so scared of it, why they're trying to turn around and say, you know, this won't benefit you in any way, because it is the most fundamental means through which we realize our collective power. That's why they're clamping down on it. I can imagine sort of if Penny Mordaunt was alive in the 18th century or the 19th century saying very similar things, you know, it's not in the interests of the slaves in the American South to go on strike. You know, the only people they're harming is themselves. 
like, you know, you might, you might say it's a sort of crass analogy and, you know, she's not endorsing slavery and what she's saying on Sky, but what she is saying is so crass that you can kind of imagine it being translated into some of those situations and it not being much more ridiculous than it sounds right now. Am I being fair, Ash? Yeah, I think you're being entirely fair. I mean, this is the thing is that every conservative or, you know, kind of socially liberal, but really in practice, you know, conservative, they have this thing in common, which they imagine themselves that they would be on the right side of history when it came to slavery or women's suffrage or the Chartist movement. But when you look at the way in which they sneer and pour scorn on people who are agitating for further social progress today, you think, well, the same social pressures for you to conform and you know, cleave on to a deeply unequal status quo would still exist in 1830. Why do you think that your personal metal and integrity would be any different? You haven't shown any signs of having it now. So why would that be the case in the past? Next story. London Mayor Sadiq Khan has launched a plan to extend free school meals to every primary school child in the city. The scheme will start in September and it's set to run for a year with meals being given out in term time only. It's an emergency measure intended to help ease the impact of the cost of living crisis on young children. The cost of the plan is £130 million. That'll come from an unexpected surplus in business rates and council tax income. And it will save families around £440 per child over the course of the year. 270,000 pupils are expected to benefit from the move. After the announcement, Khan appeared on BBC Breakfast, where he explained why he's decided to introduce the scheme. There are children who are receiving meals because their teachers are bringing in food to school. But also we know there are children, and it's heartbreaking, because they've not brought in a packed lunch, they're not receiving free school meals, they're pretending to eat so as not to be embarrassed. I know when I was a child, and, I, and I'm now 52 years old, but I still remember the embarrassment, uh, the shame at me receiving a free school meal token, and the majority of my peers uh, not. That, that's stayed with me for 40, 50 uh, years. And so by having it universal for all our children, 